Welcome to Season 4 of Overcoming Working Mum Burnout. This podcast is all about preventing burnout in the workplace by changing the systems that impact how mums show up at work. And sometimes those systems are part of our social infrastructure outside of work. In the first three seasons of the podcast, I interviewed researchers, DEI and HR experts, coaches and mental health experts. We talked a lot about individual change because that is what we think is within our control. But if we stop there, the collective change that we need will not happen. Only 13% of male senior managers spend time in caregiving compared to 52% of female senior managers. This season, I am therefore interviewing dads. Unless dads are more active participants in the home and more supportive leaders at work, working mums will continue to struggle, burn out, and miss out on leadership opportunities. Men have to make room for women to lead at work, and women have to make room for men to lead in the home. We can't make change alone, so I want to learn more about how we can support men to become active participants in the home and role models for caregiving leaders at work. And when mums thrive, the world benefits. This week, I'm learning from Jeremy Smith, who has two children and works full-time. But following his experiences of taking paternity leave in the US, no less, he started speaking publicly about it and encourages other dads to do the same. He shares some of the challenges of taking leave and the consequences it had at work. He also presents some tips about how to advocate for parental leave without becoming overwhelmed. Jeremy has hope that we have made progress on paternity leave, and he sees innovative companies with younger leaders moving in this direction further. Towards the end of our conversation, Jeremy and I drifted into politics. I had assumed that someone who was supporting paid leave policies would be trying to change the system. But actually what I took away was that Jeremy was supporting more individual choice because the system was so broken. This is in contrast to my episode with Jasper from Denmark, where he would choose to invest more in the system to get more out of it. Jeremy's perspective probably aligns more with my husband, who also sees our tax dollars in the US going to waste. These perspectives are interesting for me to consider as I develop my new leadership program, which is about fixing the system, not fixing the women. I hope you can learn as much from this conversation as I did. My name is Jeremy Smith, and I have two wonderful children, ages eight and five. They are now in second grade and kindergarten, which is very exciting for the whole family. And I currently work as a financial analytics manager with a private lender, but I've had forays in tech and larger financial institutions as well. Great. Thank you so much for that. So can you describe a little more what role you play at work and home as a dad? Obviously, that's what we're talking about today. And a dad and an employee and an advocate as well. How did you get there to where you are now in terms of how you run your life, work and home? Yeah, sure. So it's interesting. We are now, my family is in 
what is considered more of a traditional role setup, which has probably become more the exception than the rule, I would think, to a large degree. So how it came to be, and I'll start by saying that my wife is the primary caregiver and I am the primary monetary supplier in our household. And that was never really our intention. When our first child was born, I was able to take some paternity leave. My wife took maternity leave. And at the end of her leave, she intended to return to work. She was a paralegal. And unfortunately, when she returned to work, she found out that she was being let go. So she became unemployed, unintended, right at the beginning of our parental journey. And ultimately, through decisioning and discussion, a lot of discussion, we decided that she would remain home and take care of the kids in the near term. That has since snowballed now eight years later. And we finally have both of our children in full-time school. So we're exploring options going forward. But yeah, my job right now is really to go to work and bring home money that supports the family. And how was it taking a paternity leave as you did? Because not everyone's had that opportunity or taken that risk as it sometimes is. Yeah, absolutely. So paternity leave is actually probably what led me to being on your podcast today. So when my daughter was born, I worked for a large financial institution. And the policy at that point was to take 12 weeks, regardless of gender. So you could take up to 12 weeks. At that point in time where I was in my career, I was probably watching too much Mad Men, et cetera. And I only took six of the 12 weeks, which at the time felt prudent. In hindsight, a great regret of mine. So that was my first paternity leave experience. And I became an advocate in the space upon my second paternity leave when my son was born in 2017. So by that point, I was still at the same institution. And the policy had been extended to 16 weeks, again, regardless of mom, dad, whatever. And at that point, I had decided to take the entire leave. So full four months, which was paid, which I understand it's very rare to have a paternity leave that lasts four months and is paid. Yesterday, I was talking to someone from Denmark who um, just had paternity leave mandated, paid paternity leave mandated. So it is the US context that makes it so strange. It's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. And I'm sure we'll touch on that more later, just about the dynamics and how things are viewed, but it really is amazing. And so when I decided to take that full leave, I was one of the first people in the company as a dad to take the full leave just because of the timing and the way it worked out. And it was a very uncomfortable position that I was very concerned about career blowback, comments, pressures, et cetera. My manager at the time told me that when his son was born, he took two days off. And here I was about to go away for four months. So again, I am an advocate of taking the full benefit that you are given. I think it's the time that you can't get back. It's invaluable. There's umpteen studies saying and explaining how dads were more involved at the beginning, stay more involved 15 years down the road. There's a whole host of benefits to it, obviously. But yeah, so I was very uncomfortable with taking that leave, but ultimately did it. And it worked out fantastically. So I started speaking publicly about that experience and trying to help dads get over the fear of taking it. And fast forward five years later, and here I am. Great. That's so helpful. And to be honest, yeah, my husband took two days. So that's quite common. And I also even remember calling the university. I was working at the university when I was taking maternity leave and being so shocked that I got six weeks because coming from Europe and, and being pregnant at the same time as friends from Europe who had eight weeks already prior to giving birth. And there was me full term right up to the end. And when the lady said to me, no, you get six weeks. 
weeks. And actually, because of the situation I was in as a postdoc between two universities, it wasn't even paid. And then she was shaming me because I wanted to have more than six weeks. I was like, well, what if I have a C-section? How will I be ready to come back after six? And I was literally like, wow, she's shaming me now that she was like, oh, I came back after six weeks. And I'm like, maybe you have family that can help you, but I don't. So it was just such a strange experience for me as a woman. But my goodness, some of the barriers you must have faced have got to be even harder. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about whether you think long-term that did negatively impact your career in any way. Let's start there and then we'll talk about, okay, what have you learned about advocacy? Because I'm so excited to hear that journey too. Absolutely. So as to whether or not it affected my career long-term, ultimately it did not, but that has in part to do with the fact that I wound up leading the company several years later. But it certainly impacted my near-term compensation. My bonus that year was reduced specifically because I took the leave. And that had to do with the structure of the company and the fact that there was a certain pool of money. And I heard that behind closed doors, there was absolutely the argument made that it doesn't matter what you do while you're here. If you're not here for a third of the year, then we can't consider you a top performer. And that was something that I have my perspective on. And I think everyone's entitled to their perspective on, but differing opinions for sure. These are the types of things that I think organizations grapple with and how to handle those sorts of things. It's those perceptions and how those flow down to different levels of management that make it a really complicated issue. It's very difficult. And that's where you need a clear structure and a corporate backbone that supports things in certain ways. But it absolutely impacted certain relationships I had at work. That's how things change. And unfortunately, I was probably more at the bleeding edge of that shift, which is still happening and will be happening in the US for years to come, many years, most likely. So yeah, (laughs) there were impacts. I'd like to pretend there weren't, but there were. I will say again, at the end of the day, it was 100% worth it and I wouldn't change it regardless of those negative repercussions. Thanks for sharing that too. And even just yesterday, my husband and I were watching what we continued to hope was not Serena Williams's last tennis match. And her husband was there and I was explaining to my husband the work he'd done around paternity leave. And so he was looking it up and super interested. And I was like, But what bothers me is even when we have influential people at that level, we are still not making much progress. So tell me more about what you've learned about advocacy, because I think it's so important that we learn how to be advocates, because it's not something that necessarily we know how to do. And then what is the key to unlocking this? And again, you may not have that answer, because otherwise we'd be potentially doing something, but I get it's complicated. I know enough about advocacy to go, this is not easy, but let's hear what you know and think and your perspective. Sure. Yeah. I think advocacy at the end of the day has to come from an individual, right? And these are the things that happen in private conversations where you say what you really think and not necessarily what is expected or maybe what has been said previously, which is extremely challenging. And I understand that not everyone wants to be or should be an advocate, right? There are, there are certain people whose temperament or beliefs, or et cetera. It's not for everyone to go around with a flag saying, I support this. I think the important thing is if you do, and if you're not comfortable really speaking out about your perspective on it, just be the voice of reasoning conversations. You can play a devil's advocate role and be an advocate. Just a counter opinion that maybe goes more towards the favoring of parental leave, et cetera, it's a good voice to have. And I think ultimately that is what's going to bring about change. Now, with all that being said, as an advocate, a lot of times the level that you're speaking to is more of the corporate structure, right? Um, so for example, I've now been linked up through Mindful Return through some of my work and that 
again, is what leads me to be on here. But Lori Mahalik-11, who runs Mindful Return, has managed to make a ton of inroads in the advocacy world. And we've been brought in to speak at law firms and conglomerates. There's some large institutions that are very interested in changing the conversations within their companies that are willing to host these conversations. A lot of times we're working with ERG groups that'll bring us in to, to speak on the topic. And I think for corporations, encouraging people to turn out to those events is part of changing the mindset and the attitude. Yeah, that's so interesting. One, I really think that issue of the struggle you can have in those individual conversations. And again, depending on the group that you may be part of as how it's seen and how it's stereotyped against you, it can be very hard to stand up and interrupt that bias at all levels. That can be very difficult, especially when it's something that's either very personal to you or again, that is a source of strain and drain on your life. Expecting sort of the abuse to become advocates is really hard. But I do like that advice you have of saying, what if you just ask, is it fair? If you were the voice of reason and, and all you said at each conversation, can we just check this is fair? Just one voice of curiosity, just trying to stimulate a slightly different point of view. I think that's great advice indeed. And then to the conversations we're having, and so I, again, am super respectful that you are doing that and you're getting in there, but I'm sick of these conversations now. I'm sick of the talk. I'm sick of the checking the boxes. Like we really need to move into beyond awareness. Now, maybe we are still in that stage of change where awareness raising is the issue. But for me, as like a behavior change specialist, I know that the gap between intention and action is like the Grand Canyon. People can have good intentions for decades and never act upon them. So again, I feel like the conversation is allowing companies to tout that they are as part of their PR and branding. Have you got situations where it has actually moved beyond conversations? Knowing awareness raising, it's a really important first step, but it's not sufficient. We need more than that. So have you got examples for me? I think so. So if I've observed anything, it's that the industries and sectors where you tend to have a more youthful driving base, so say in technology, right? In technology, the average age of managers, et cetera, tends to be younger just by nature of the business. And in those situations, I think you tend to see change more quickly and you tend to see a reassessment of what drives benefits within the company. Those companies oftentimes offer bigger benefit packages, more broad packages, things that you know, you might not expect to receive pet insurance, for example. So they tend to be a little bit farther ahead in changing what is considered the norm around parental leave. So if you dissect that a little bit, right, I think part of it is generational. I think as millennials come on board, are driving more of the workload and rise to positions of power, hopefully we'll see a faster acceleration in the change that needs to happen. But it's so complicated because I think at the end of the day in America, we tend to think of things in terms of returns. It always comes down to, why would we do that? What's the benefit? And in Europe, it, it's more of a conversation around quality of life and societal benefits. And in America, you almost have to tie a dollar value to something to make it move. And so I think part of what can help accelerate the change is to put raw numbers and attention around the statistics. Retention of employees is a huge reason to offer extended leaves. Huge reason. The parents are experiencing radical change in their lives 
to the point where flexibility and leave, et cetera, are considered reasons to stay with a company. And I think changing the mindset of it's just someone getting time off from work to, no, this is a benefit they're receiving. It builds loyalty, it builds retention, and that saves the company money over time. I think putting more raw economics around that will help change. It will require effort and research and things that need to happen. But I think that'll really move the needle, especially in some of the more stalwart industries. Great. And I love those two examples, again, that the younger generations are expecting different things. And again, I read an article just yesterday about that, how the mindset of the younger generation around well-being and purpose, and even the use of technology, because again, there, there was a lot of debate as Malcolm Gladwell was saying that remote work was, you know, what did the world come to? And they were saying, we grew up using technology to create community. So we're really good at it. So I love that pushback from that generational perspective. And to be honest, generational perspective also is partly why I stepped into this work as well, was because I was interviewing older women, older mothers who had worked 50 years ago, and their stories were so similar to mine. And I was like, okay, nothing has changed. It was so shocking to me. And to see that we had gone backwards to almost their state of being in the 50s through the pandemic. That's why I'm keen to shift this status quo while also understanding how complex this is. Again, as someone that comes from public health, I understand the multiple influences and things here. I really appreciate concrete examples of where we can make change. So let's just pick up on that retention one and the dollars to it. When I was interviewing somebody in HR, who's a consultant for HR leaders, they were saying essentially that we're hiding things like burnout and parents leaving, we're not acknowledging that it is regrettable turnover. And the precise example of this also came in my own situation. And I know it in many other mothers situations, I left my job because of burnout. And the message that was conveyed to everybody else in that organization was that I had left to spend more time with my family. And it wasn't true, because I was experiencing parental burnout too. So That's where I'm really trying to think about this is I feel, yes, the dollar amount is so important, but if we're hiding the impact, that's why I feel like burnout is having such a huge effect on employees, but employees aren't admitting they're burned out. And if they do, then companies are saying, that's your personal problem, your personal inability to cope with stress. So they're not putting it as, oh, this is something that our company could have done something about. And then just to make the situation so much worse, companies now are saying that's one of the things they're cutting first is maternity leave as the economy takes a downturn. So can you help me like think through this? As I say, I don't necessarily have the solution, but two minds better than one and your experience of working in this space. How can we acknowledge that these are problems that can be assigned to the organization and that can be attached to retention, which I don't believe they're currently being directly attached. I tend to agree. I definitely don't think they're being directly attached. I think fairness, it's a very hard thing to quantify. We live in a society in a world where if you can't quantify it, it doesn't exist. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of room for gray these days. And I understand statistically too, unless we put a randomized controlled trial, it's really hard to show cause and effect, right? So, I'm very optimistic about what we have right over the horizon because 
right now, what you'll see every day on the front page is most people are expected to start going back to work in a pre-2020 sort of a world after Labor Day, which, you know, as we're talking right now is right around the corner. I think Apple came out and said that they expect people to be back in the offices, I believe they said, on a hybrid schedule, like three days a week. And it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out in that conversation, because I know a lot of employees, specifically the Apple example, have said, no, I have no interest in doing that. And you might lose me specifically because of this situation. And I think it, it may seem a little tangential to what we're talking about, but I'm not so sure it is because part of the COVID landscape and what's changed has almost been this building in of the flexibility that we've all desired for so long, and especially for parents to be able to, I'm already at home. I'm already around the things that I need to make my life happen. I can hop in my car. I can go pick up my child. I can drop my child at dance, et cetera. And so there's this thing happening right now where flexibility is becoming more expected as a baseline. So I'm very optimistic about what kinds of changes and what aspects and avenues that can influence. So I don't think I answered your question, but I think I answered it with hopefully some positivity about what I think may be a catalyst for evolving that conversation further. Yeah, and I agree. Flexibility is so important for parents, but it also is a solution for burnout as well, because flexibility also conveys autonomy. And that is also so important for our mental health as well. So I agree when that flexibility starts to go away, it will be interesting to see what happens. And part of me is like, something just has to fall apart. Like I felt like we did, we fell apart in, in, I suppose we didn't in pandemic. We were so resilient in so many ways that things didn't necessarily all, all fall apart. So I, I, I'm just trying to think again, from my European perspective, I remember when I was living in the South of France, I love the French, the way they protest, basically the farmers were fed up. So they piled manure in front of the mayor's door this ancient huge door but they piled it all the way top to the top of the mayor's door in the town hall so not only could the mayor not get to work the whole city smelled of shit we definitely knew there was a problem and then it was solved because this was going to just keep happening so again i know reshma's son johnny's called for that like how do we have in our advocacy more you know and again it's not necessarily everybody's style and that's not necessarily the most successful advocacy either but I'm trying to think about how we can like you say really connect the dysfunction and the problems to the causes so that we can move that that needle it's an excellent question I wish I had a better answer I unfortunately don't know I think if it was straightforward we would see more of it already there's this challenge in the U.S. of just that mindset of productivity above all else right and in a way that is quality of life improving because as a society, we tend to benefit from higher productivity, but holy cow, you mentioned burnout. It, it's become exacerbated to a point where I'm hoping that will be a breaking point that leads to change. But in terms of advocacy, there are times where I get down on this issue where I really feel like it will be just generational. Like we're almost just waiting to see that, that belief system change. I don't think there's a silver bullet It'll have to be a federal policy change. And I don't know about you, but I'm not holding my breath on that one. That's why I think it's so important that the companies are actually taking the lead on that because it is their employees and it is their cost. Yeah. Yeah. And I will say, I don't know if you're familiar, but there are companies, I believe Netflix is one where they now offer a year available. I'm not sure if all of it's paid or not, but a year for parental leave, regardless of gender again. And I think fortunately, 
for us in the space, it's a time when those kind of forward-thinking technology-based companies are really at the forefront and are the ones that you're reading about as the examples of the new world and the new way. So knock on wood, fingers crossed in that sense that it just slowly moves people over the fence to understanding it better. I should also say there's a group out of Boston College called the Boston College Center for Work and Family. It's run by Dr. Brad Harrington and his assistant, Jennifer Ferroni. And they've done incredible work specifically around the dad space. There's this study that they put out annually up through 2019, I believe. And they've since moved on to some other things, but around new dads, it's called the new dad study. And there's fantastic metrics and quantifiable things that they've spent a tremendous amount of time and resources to generate. And so I think it's important that those research groups and think tanks, et cetera, exist. And I think the more that research is adopted by corporations is really what's going to move things. So I painted a bit of a negative picture there when I said, I think we should just all wait around. Not the case at all, right? It's just more about making that information available and having people within organizations demand it and point to it. So I think there are concrete examples where that work already exists and can be leveraged for change within organizations. But again, it takes advocates within the organizations to do that. And I think one of the things that Lori highlights a lot is around those ERG groups and how that's probably the best avenue towards trying to influence change today within a corporation. I think that is so important. And again, for me too, in that sort of public health and burnout space, I'm in that same situation in terms of we know what to do differently. There are vast swathes of recommendations. There is lots of data. And and I think companies are still claiming we don't know what to do as the problem. And again, okay, so you're not aware of this data. Let's make it aware. Let's make these solutions again. There are Harvard-based toolkits around how to actually have managers who really do personal check-ins. And this was a work-life family study from decades. And again, there is evidence-based programs that companies can use that are literally possible to take off the shelf. But yeah, it's again, do they know about them and then do they use them and do they invest in them? So I love that you mentioned ERGs there, because again, one of my recommendations for burnout is to pay ERGs because we're not valuing their time. Because again, when you're volunteering on an ERG, and previously I think it was that they were places where you could be yourself more, you could have conversations about the things that maybe you couldn't have in the broader organization. Now they have this remit to actually do something about the problems that they used to be able to discuss yet without the pay behind it. So it does come back to that feeling of, yes, when we do know what to do and when we have people problem solving like in the ERGs, how do we invest in them and value their time? No, you're exactly right. And it is something where if you're claiming to value an ERG and you're expecting employees who step up or even are voluntold to do it, right? Then if that's expected to be 20% of their time, then you should compensate them as if it's 20% of their time. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's probably just an instance of well-run companies that are willing to do that and ones who don't value it as much. But it does, it truly always comes down to the economics, it feels like, where until someone's willing to quantify these benefits, it's hard to see how management will take them as seriously as they do other things. And in their defense, that's the scorecard they're graded on oftentimes, especially at a, a public company. 
company. Yeah, exactly. And I think we can look at the benefits, but also even in my personal life, starting to look at the costs. Like I didn't look at the costs of saying yes, but we also have to understand what are the costs of people giving 20% of their time for free to these causes? What are the costs of losing people? Because I think that we're hiding because to me, like the cost of burnout impact families it impacts your health, it impacts representation at companies, but we're not necessarily putting it in those buckets and weighing it up against the benefits of some of the positive things we can do. It's a difficult conversation. It is. And to your point earlier, that's why it hasn't been solved. A slippery fish. But I love that. To really start promoting the tech companies and the younger companies, describing their examples, promoting their case studies, that's going to help. Again, promoting the companies who are paying ERGs. We we need examples for others to follow. Again, so that we give people permission to do these things differently when we provide examples. So even that, that is advocacy. Highlighting journalists, folks like ourselves, highlighting those good examples. So... I appreciate that. So just going back to the home environment then, how have you found, even though you now are the provider and your wife has has been up until this point, the one that's staying at home, how have you tried to support her in that? Because mums, whether they're working or not, definitely dads too, whoever is looking after the kids can be burning out. And you can be burning out too in terms of when I see dads who are actually doing half the work at home and having the job, it is already 150% time. So it's a challenge. So what have you guys done as a family to try and manage the stress and the pressures that others maybe can benefit from? Yeah, it's been a difficult journey. I won't lie, especially during COVID times. I'll start with myself because as a dad, it's important to be a martyr about everything, right? During the pandemic, we all not all of us, but I was told to work from home and my son was here 24-7 during that period. And my daughter was here doing remote kindergarten, which went about as well as you would think. Um, So it was chaotic to say the least. I had the luxury of onboarding to a new role during a new company and a new role during COVID. So I was still getting my feet wet, trying to understand the organization. I didn't know people outside of a computer screen, et cetera. And there were just all of these challenges in terms of noise levels and what was off limits and what was not off limits during the day. Every time I went to fill up my cup with water, my son would ask to play with me and I would have to say, no, I'm working. I'm so sorry. I really want to, but I can't. And so there was this whole weird boundary setting that needed to happen. And we're just doing it on the fly as you know, everyone was doing everything on the fly then. So I think all of that just led to a lot of very difficult moments. So I think During those times, we were both experiencing burnout in very different ways. And it was very hard to not feel like you were the victim because we were both victims in a lot of ways and the kids were too. So things that we instituted during that period, number one was a bailout word. So I'm a huge fan of this. I encourage everyone to do this. If you are around impressionable young minds and with your family and you have just, you've hit your limit, right? You're stressed out, you're burnout, just You can't handle with one more dad, can I have a snack moment, whatever it is. Just have a word where you can say it and you can walk away. And the other person knows that they are now in charge to step in and take over, et cetera. So really good mechanism for keeping things cool when times are difficult. But more than that, it's just a small example of communication. 
right? And it's always about communication. It always comes back to communication and whether or not you can be honest about what you need in certain moments and then also understanding and listening to give your spouse or partner what they need in those difficult moments too. We sometimes talk about that, your lid's been flipped or whatever, that the kids know how to describe if they've reached a limit like that. But I, I love that bailout word. And moms need to use it as much as dads. We've got equal permission that we need to walk away because, again, it can be hard to admit that we've reached our limits. But I think the other example that you also gave there, because we are in situations where often both of us have reached our limits at the same time. And I remember... One time, knowing my husband had a really difficult day because he had shared that with me early in the day, but I still came home from picking up the kids and my son was having mental health challenges and I just felt like I hadn't shown up for him in the best way I could. And so I did. I just sat in the car and I cried and my husband opened the door of the car and he just knelt by the car and he let me cry, let me get it out, listened and I said to him, I know you don't have bandwidth to do anything about this right now. And I know you've got your own problems. And he was like, yeah, I'm sorry. I don't have more to give at this precise moment. But he did just stop and let me get it out and listen. And we went on. And I think that I wouldn't have been able to do before. We used to just have battles of who's more stressed and who's having a worse day and whose work is more important. And that mindset, just nobody won in that situation. So I think that is, it's such an important shift. There's definitely going to be times when both of you are overwhelmed and you haven't got anything left to give, but you can give space. No, absolutely. I'm a hundred percent with you. And I feel that to my core, believe me. (laughs) Okay. About what you think mums could do to help dads take more active role, either at home or at work. Again, what are some of the things that you've found that have worked? Yeah, I think, and this is a very personal, circumstantial thing, right? It depends on so many varieties of factors. For my family, I think one of the things that really helped a lot was my wife being willing to let go of some control and to maybe lessen her external signs of anxiety around anyone else, not just me, but having control over the kids in a way. So she's very forthcoming in saying that When she had our children, it was like a piece of her heart left her body and is just walking around in the world vulnerable to everything, right? And I can't imagine what that feels like. I feel that in a sense, but I get the impression that I don't feel it the way she does. And so for her, even giving me control for a day, if I were to take the kids somewhere, it would eat her up. And I'm not sure she could live a normal day just knowing that her kids are totally out of her control. And things have changed a little since since they've been in school, et cetera. But I think a lot of what I've experienced, again, very personal, but in, in how my wife helped me to be a better dad was to just give me more control to make my own decisions around parenting. So I don't do things the way she does all the time. I didn't change a diaper the way she did. I don't feed the kids the same way she does. I don't talk to them the same way she does. I'm different. And I think... For her accepting, maybe it's not the right way in quotes, maybe it's not the best way or the way she would do things, but it's okay. And that there's certainly a role that dads play that's going to be a little bit different than moms. And I have to be conscious of the fact that there's so many gender dynamics and things in the world now that are different, but it's just about being willing to be there and allow someone else to be a parent in a different way than you. 
And that is so important. And again, my husband and I had that extremely difficult conversation when I asked him to step up more as a parent. And he said, I don't want to because you criticize me. And I was like, oh, goodness, you are so right. And that was so hard to swallow. But actually, part of my process of burnout recovery was actually letting go of being an authoritarian parent, because it wasn't making me happy. In fact, that's when I started disliking myself when I became a parent and was this authoritarian parent that I had grown up seeing and I didn't like it, but didn't know what else to do. So yeah, when I started to actually learn different parenting styles, and then like you say, just said, okay, yeah, my husband is so different from me in so many ways. And this is great because the kids will learn, like I'm a rule follower, he's not. And so they're going to learn both. And in some situations, the other is fine. And again, I'm going to cook a home cooked meal and he's going to get takeout and it's fine. They can have both. That really worked for me when I started to just say, okay, I'm going to go out for evenings or periods or days or weeks even, and you're in charge fully on your own. And I won't be there to criticize. And here's the things that maybe the kids are supposed to turn up to, but to be honest, if they don't, I don't care either. Make it work for you. So did you find that easy to do to let go of that in those moments? Or was that a huge cognitive burden just to relinquish it? That's such a good question. It was such a relief to do it. It was not difficult for me because as I say, it didn't make me feel good to be critical. It didn't make me feel good to be authoritarian. I was doing it because I thought it was the, somehow I was wired to do it or it was the right thing to do, but it wasn't making me feel good. So I knew there was something off. There was some cognitive dissonance that was off. And again, the same as when I ended up leaving my job due to burn and just stepping away as a mom for multiple days, the relief was immediate. So it made me feel so much better. And actually what's interesting, one of the things that we instituted was with the help of a coach, particularly around my son being on the autism spectrum was mental health days. So he very much needed to feel control of certain things. And that was difficult to be able to provide a child in many days when you're at school or whatever. So basically it was one day a month where he was in control of everything in his life. He controlled all the decisions. And at first what he did actually was say that we couldn't do things. He said to me, you can't eat yogurts on days where I'm in control. And I was like, this is not control over me. This is control over you, all your decisions. So then the coach helped us work around it and call these mental health days. And so we do, we say every month or every couple of months, I'm like, okay, we need a mental health day and everybody gets it and I get it too. And so there were no rules for me. I'm not enforcing any rules on those days. The kids are doing it entirely. And the relief I get on those days when I'm not enforcing any rules, it doesn't matter what they do and what they eat. And we just all get a break from control and perfectionism, I suppose, too. That sounds incredible. I'm both inspired and terrified to try that out myself. Yeah, let's start to wrap up now. When you think about the future of home and work life for your kids, I think it's really helpful to have a vision of what that would look like for you. you said your personal examples, they're all important. Examples are what we need. And I very much think about visions are what we need because when I have a vision, I can then reverse engineer from that to actually say, what are the steps to getting there? So, Yeah, I, I think, I mean, we touched on it earlier in the differences between the US and Europe. And 
I think what I would want for the future is a more holistic view of people and a bigger focus on the quality of life. Because I don't necessarily agree with the way things have been in the US for seemingly forever. The emphasis and the things that are held up as ideals are starting to be challenged in a way that maybe they haven't before. And again, I do think a lot of that is generational in a way, but I think can be a catalyst for good. I hope my kids have four-day work weeks. I'll put it that way. I hope for a lot of changes on that front. I think my concerns around those are more that I still find it difficult under our structure of healthcare to think that we will ever as individuals have as much control as we should. Because I think that's the stranglehold that keeps everyone in line at this point. It's hard to break out on your own. It's hard to exist without being a part of the system in that way. So I hope there's real advancements on that front. I would personally love to see healthcare not require your employment, just because to me, I believe that would unlock more potential in people that would make society better. I think we would make far greater advancements if people had more freedom to pursue their interests and not just what financially makes the most sense. So I think those are probably the changes I would make. I think you can weave in there the appropriate inferrals around paternity leave and maternity leave and that sort of thing. But yeah, I hope in the future there's more control at the individual level. Interesting. I see very much from the European perspective, we don't have individual control. And to be honest, as a Brit, I don't have any individual rights either. And it's I see those as being problems in some ways. For example, with parental burnout, the international studies show that the US, it's much higher and it's related to this need to have individual control so that it prevents you asking for help. But I certainly understand in the systems as they are now, those systems aren't helping us. So we do want to go back to having individual control. And certainly I understand that perspective too, because I was having this conversation yesterday with my colleague from Denmark. He was saying, I'd much rather pay more taxes if it means my childcare is going to be cheaper and my parental care is going to be cheaper, all these things. But it was that trust he had that the government could do it. So I do understand where you're coming from, because in the current system, the system's not working. So I want out of it. That makes sense to me. It's challenging and my own biases and resentments are heavily built into those comments. Here we are. Here we are. So let's end on your favorite dad joke because humor is so important in what we do. So favorite dad joke is actually one taught to me by my daughter, which I guess makes it even more appropriate as a dad joke. And I will pitch it to you. So what kind of cat should you never play games with? What kind of cat should you never play games with? I don't know. How about a cheetah? <laughs> oh, that's such a good one. Yeah, I thought so too. I was really impressed. I don't know where she picked it up, but <laughs> I thought it was a great joke. It's so funny. So many people have said, I got this one for my kids. So actually, maybe we're saying our favorite kid joke. I love it. I love it. That's great. So yeah, if there was anything you wanted to share with the audience again, because I do, I really appreciate your optimism and hope around this. And I've been the devil's advocate. So yeah, to leave our audience with some hope in this space, what would you say? For me, the hope is that within the past five years, I should say five years ago, I was able to take a four month paternity leave. And I think if you were around the clock 10 years ago, 
you wouldn't have believed that was going to happen at a major financial institution in this country. So I think having experienced personally that progress, I'm very hopeful that we'll continue in that direction. And it gives me a lot of joy to be in the space. You know, I'm very involved with Lori's group, Mindful Return. We have tons of dads who come into the courses and share with me similar beliefs to what we talked about today and just their hope and how they feel about things that I don't think would have been discussed openly 10 years ago, 20 years ago. So I'm very optimistic. Thanks so much for listening today. Don't forget to check out my website, www.drjacquelinecurr.com for your free guides to prevent burnout. Would you like to join a cohort of women like yourself who want to disrupt the status quo, but are facing constant barriers and like you are beginning to wonder whether your approach will even gain traction? Have you experienced the supportive environment of executive group coaching, knowing you're not alone and learning from others' mistakes and strategies, but you want to have more concrete goals and measures of progress? In conjunction with my leadership training, I'm facilitating small groups of women executives in peer learning collaboratives. This is a scientific process that it's used in medicine when important new recommendations need to be put into practice and there's likely to be pushback. Peer learning collaboratives leverage the supportive environment of group coaching, but with more targeted goals, greater accountability, and a quality improvement process that measures impact through learning cycles. In my training, you'll learn five new evidence-based strategies to support your leadership confidence and credibility, including how to use macro and micro root cause problem solving, how to create culture change through daily behavior change, and how to manage change and burnout. The peer learning collaboratives will provide a safe environment for you to put your new skills and strategies into action while learning from other women leading similar change efforts in their organizations. As you face barriers, we will problem solve together, empowering you to use adaptive experimental processes to help you build more resilient and informed solutions. A peer learning collaborative has three phases. In the co-design phase, members are brought together from diverse areas to establish buy-in and shared ownership. Building trust is important in this phase through shared values and expectations, shared vision and goals, open communication channels, and conflict resolution processes. In the collaborative learning phase, the group process is further solidified through peer empowerment, accountability partners, and celebrating small wins. The experimental process then starts with needs assessments, behavior targets, logic modeling, and plan, do, study, act cycles. In the adaptation and scale phase, lessons from the learning phase are translated into best practice guidelines and operational toolkits. Case studies are shared and champions are empowered to promote the findings and benefits to other units. How often do you find that you're trying to prevent the fires that men love to put out? You're spoiling their quick fixes and save the day hero-based approaches. Instead, you can see the forest and the trees. 
You want to disrupt the status quo with more collaborative, adaptable, long-term approaches that change how and why we work, bringing in flexibility and greater purpose. Yet your ideas are dismissed and the systems remain stuck, perpetuating bias and burnout. My training will give you the confidence and credibility to lead through change, manage change, and leverage change for transformational change. It will show you that your intuitive gendered intelligence is supported by tried and tested scientific frameworks, and it will provide you with more processes and tools to leverage that knowledge for greater impact and social good, based in public health science, behavior change science, and implementation science. Never before have we been through a global pandemic, racial reckoning, mental health epidemic, or great resignation. With a recession looming, post-pandemic stress levels are likely to remain high and resources low. Reports from Deloitte, Microsoft, Adeco, and Modern Health show that employees are dissatisfied with the current fix-the-person solutions and want to see transformational change in the organization itself. The need to lead with impact and provide return on investment is greater than ever, in more uncertain, challenging, and complex times than ever. During these times of monumental change, there have been few guiding frameworks for leaders. There are not yet evidence-based solutions to these new emerging and urgent problems. So it's even more essential to use evidence-based processes to manage change. My behavior science tools will enable you to embrace complexity, lead through change, and manage the overwhelm. I want to help women leaders with a new playbook for compassionate and competent leadership in times of change and complexity, with evidence-based frameworks and strategies for moving beyond the status quo and leading the workforce of the future. When you join a peer learning collaborative, you'll gain confidence, camaraderie, and compassion for the challenges you face. We will use scientific tools and processes to guide our progress, use behavior change strategies to keep us on track, and key indicators of change to evaluate our impact. Over a 12-week period, you'll set goals for the changes you want to see in your organization. You'll operationalize them as behaviors. You'll prepare your organization for change by creating a safe learning and growth culture. You'll roll out and measure what is working and why and develop ways to overcome barriers to change. You'll share your progress and challenges with the other executive women in your cohort so they can benefit from your experience, so they can provide support and ideas for solutions, and so that together you can exponentially grow your learning, leveraging each other's adaptations and innovations to similar problems. The training and cohorts will be available in 2023. In the meantime, I've created a free masterclass to introduce you to the five key strategies because change can be scary and you still might be uncertain about what it takes. My five evidence-based leadership strategies are leading through complexity with compassion, understanding root causes and solving macro and micro problems using the social ecological model and lessons from public health, leading with impact, identifying and operationalizing key change levers using behavior change science and strategies to create sustainable habits that change systems. Leading with insight, 
creating the conditions for a culture of change using psychological safety, emotional intelligence, rewarding daily behaviors, and empowering role models. Leading with curiosity, finding and testing new solutions for employee wellness, retention, and belonging using peer learning collaboratives as a supportive and science-based process for managing change and developing resilience. Leading with clarity, understanding and managing multifaceted burnout so you and those you lead can thrive through change using multi-level burnout solutions. If you're ready to start on a new leadership journey, I look forward to guiding you through this in my online course and supporting you in a peer learning collaborative. Please direct message me to get access to the free masterclass or sign up for the 2023 start. And please remember, burnout can be related to serious health problems. If you're experiencing physical or mental health symptoms, please contact a health provider or call the appropriate helpline. This podcast does not replace medical advice. Take care. Yeah.